Welcome to the World Outspoken feature. World Outspoken exists to support culture makers speaking good news into the cities they make. One of the ways we support culture makers is by highlighting inspiring makers having a profound impact on the shape of their cities. In today's episode, we sit down with Dr. A.R. Bernard, pastor of the Christian Cultural Center in Brooklyn, New York, to discuss the Urban Village Project of his church, a $1.2 billion development project related to addressing the gentrification happening in Brooklyn. Now, let's hear from Dr. A.R. Bernard about the Urban Village Project and the city he makes. Welcome to the World Outspoken feature. My name is Emmanuel Padilla. I'm your host. And today I am with Dr. A.R. Bernard, the senior pastor of the Christian Cultural Center here in Brooklyn, New York, as well as Long Island and a few other locations. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, well, we're here to talk about a new project that they are starting here in the coming year. They have an aggressive plan, uh, and we're really looking to uh, understand what they're going to do because it is a wonderful model that should be replicated and can be replicated by other churches, and we just want to learn more about it. So, Dr. A. Bernard, thank you for coming on. Uh, we just want to hear more about your project, The Urban Village. So why don't we start with the basic question. What is The Urban Village Project? Well, first let me thank you for taking the time to... Uh, invest in sharing this with your audience. I think it's a, a worthy project, a worthy concept, an idea that uh, should take hold as a model of what we can do to respond to the needs within our society, whether it's uh, pushing back against gentrification or bringing affordable housing, sustainable affordable housing, which is a great need, uh, not only in the urban context, but suburban and rural areas as well. So um, here we are, and thank you. And to your listening audience, I hope they get something out of it, inspiration, some ideas as well. Uh, but I've been at this for 40 years, my background, 10 years in banking, mm -hmm. and then being called full-time into ministry and uh, in ministry for 40 years here in New York City. We have 10 and a half acres uh, as well as other properties, but that's our largest piece. And we were scheduled to develop it about 10 years ago. But the recession came in, things changed, and fortunately we had the wisdom and foresight to uh, pull back. So here we are with a brand new master plan that looks to implement a philosophy of living that I've coined uh, Urban Village. And that is a community of mixed income uh, bands within the same community a walkable, livable community, which means that amenities are available within a thousand-foot walking distance. I'm a big fan of Jane Jacobs, if you know there it is. anything about yeah, her of and her philosophies concerning the city. Uh -huh. For the last 70 years in America, we've practiced warehousing one-income band uh, of people and giving them a better quality of life than most of what they've had, but creating conditions that would end up becoming problematic. Yeah, Dr. Bernard, if you don't, if you don't mind, would you clarify what you mean by warehousing? I know what you mean, but just for our <laughs> audience. To... Well, when we decide that we're going to offer affordable housing and we take all low-income uh, individuals and put them into Lego block project buildings, uh, we have created an inner city condition mm -hmm. because there's no upward mobility. Uh, there's no sense of community because there is no, uh, there are no stakeholders. There, there is no, 
no uh, destination amenities. There, there are no eyes on the streets, which are required mm-hmm. uh, to create community. So the absence of retail, the absence of commercial within the community itself makes a big difference. Yeah, healthy grocers, those kind of food yeah, deserts yeah. that we create. Absolutely. Yeah, so we, we've done that. We've done that for so long, uh, calling ourselves answering the, the, the need but really creating what um, this current administration on the campaign trail called the inner city condition. And unlike uh, the 60s where that condition was geographic, now it's a condition that can be experienced in urban areas, suburban areas, and even in rural America. In fact, rural white America is the largest concentration of uh, impoverished communities. However, uh, how uh, whites experience poverty is quite different Absolutely. from how persons of color experience it, it, experience it in the urban context. So that's important to, to note. So there's gentrification taking place across the country. Uh, some of it is economic gentrification because you have a generation of persons of color who've experienced uh, unprecedented wealth, education, and upward mobility. Uh, so they're part of that uh, you know, uh, economic gentrification, but it's also racial in some concentrated areas, such as Atlanta right now. Right. You know, so our issue here in New York is a, a need for affordable housing, not only at a working class or low income level, but affo- uh, we're talking, uh, you know, middle income. Right. We're talking about police officers, teachers, uh, uh, civil service workers, et cetera, who are in need of affordable housing because they're being priced out. Right. So we have this land that we can do something with. Mm -hmm. So we came up with a concept of the urban village. So it's 2,100 units of mixed income residents, including some uh, that you can purchase Mm -hmm. uh, in the form of French maisonettes, uh, commercial space, retail, and uh, a performing arts center, uh, also an educational building, which will house 24-hour childcare, it will house vocational training, community service spaces, uh, mental health uh, services as well, all within that particular educational building. Yeah. The commercial space will include health care, you know, uh, meeting the needs of the community residents who will live in that space. Uh, it's a, a, you know, environment is more than just the physical attributes. Absolutely. It is also the the emotional significance that's given to the spaces within that environment. It is spiritual. It is social. That's very Jane Jacobs of you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So eyes on the streets to reduce the need for policing as a form of keeping the peace and keeping crime down. Because when you have shopkeepers who are stakeholders, uh, commercial um, entrepreneurs who are stakeholders, uh, destinations because they're small shops and restaurants instead of big box stores, Mm -hmm. the performing arts center, you have activity, you have lights, you have people. Right. And that lessens the need for policing, you right. know, formal policing. Right. Um, so that is, you know, our philosophy, a walkable, livable community and a model that can be replicated with any minor adjustments to any just about any context across the country. Yeah, that's an amazing pro- amazing project. I believe it's going to cost $1.2 billion is the projected. Is that right? Yeah, $850 million for the residential, retail, and commercial, but then... The Performing Arts Center, right. you know, uh, parking garage to accommodate 
uh, as well as the educational building. That is what brings it up to the 1.2 billion. Yeah. yeah, it's an amazing project, quite the challenge in terms of the full breadth and scale of it. I want to ask a couple questions of the overall summary that you gave here. Uh, one, uh, the Masonettes, uh, why that choice of architectural style? Um, it, it provides a kind of beauty, and so I understand that, that it, it has an aesthetic. And to your point, the provision of beauty uh, creates a, a spot, a destination that people want to attend and be active in. And so I assume that that's part of it, but, but why the architectural style? And maybe beyond that, why the amenities that you've chosen to add to the urban village? Well, let's talk, talk about architectural style. It's going to have brick surfacing the buildings. Uh, there will be different setbacks with a lot of green space on roofs. So the maisonette allows for a rooftop what would be a backyard right. <laughs> in the urban community is now being experienced on the rooftop. Uh, it also allows for um, different levels of family needs. You're talking singles, couples, larger families. You're talking uh, seniors, you know, so it's quite a mixture. It's an integrated uh, housing experience. Uh, so the Maisonettes give a sense of private home ownership, even though it's built into a much larger complex of buildings. We considered air, light, porosity, what that experience would be in such a dense complex, because the, the tallest building will be about 17 stories, which is lower than all of the surrounding buildings and other developments that are close by. Uh, and um, in terms of an amenities, you know, we want to give opportunity to entrepreneurs to open small businesses within the community. We're actually going to create a chamber of commerce. So that excellent. chamber of commerce within that set of uh, commercial and retail uh, will help to sustain, to build, to foster uh, a greater sense of community by opening opportunities for entrepreneurs to come in and start businesses. That's excellent. I think this project is one that, that the church should be committed to, but maybe there are some who are a little suspicious of that. So let me ask, why did, uh, why did you and why does the Christian Cultural Center believe that this is something that is the next move? It's the important next step for the church. Uh, let's, start with, let's just start there. Why, why is this the next important thing to do? I, I, I think that it's the next important thing only in a line of things that we have done that have come out of our philosophy of ministry. You know, uh, our church was called Christian Life Center at one time, but it's because I was challenged by one of the mayors of New York City uh, in a way that sent me revisiting my Christianity. Uh, he, this particular mayor, illustrious Mayor Koch, decided that he would eliminate the clergy liaison positions between City Hall and the religious community but he decided to keep the Muslim liaison and the Jewish liaison. And I said, well, okay, why? What's, what's the difference here? And he said, well, you, you Christians, you know, you're a religion. Uh, the others two are cultures. I said, oh, really? And that set me on fire to revisit Christianity as a culture. You know, culture is that integrated system of beliefs, traditions, customs, ideas, values, products, and today technologies that right. constitute the life of a, of a people group. It is essentially how men think society should be organized and what the best ways are to live in it. And we have a very specific idea and value system that Absolutely. is uniquely Christian. Absolutely. That we bring to the world. You know, so in 1989, I began reteaching uh, Christianity and our whole gospel experience from the lens of culture. 
And by 2000, we had grown from uh, 625 members to 11,000 members within that 10-year span. We changed the name to Christian Cultural Center. So intrinsic as a name is the theology yes. that drives it. And, uh, you know, I guess all of your students have read or will read at some point in time uh, H. Richard Niebuhr's work, yes. classic work, classic Christ work and Culture. Mm-hmm. You know, Niebuhr looked at the five relationships that Christ, the church, and even the believer would have uh, with culture. Didn't tell us where to land. Or well, we landed very specifically. Yeah, he suggested, though. Uh, yeah, he strongly <laughs> suggested. <laughs> he suggested. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we think... And believe strongly that the church should be a transformational presence within the society. That's what salt and light is. Uh, salt as a preservative, not to convert the meat, but to preserve the integrity of the meat. And for us, not to convert the entire world, which would be wonderful, God wants that, but that's not the reality, but to preserve the moral and spiritual integrity uh, of the world. It's intrinsic. And that goes back to where your theology begins. That Does it begin with the fall or does it begin with creation? Right. And our theology begins with creation. Right. So we begin with that very important phrase, and God saw that it was good. So we don't buy into the notion of total moral depravity. We do buy into the notion that man was created and everything was created essentially good. It became wounded and broken as a result of the entrance of sin, but redeemable. And we can now look at culture in a very simple way to say, okay, we embrace what's good, reject the bad, and change what we can. Yeah. And whatever context we can be in to make those changes, we should be there. So our model of Christ, our image of Christ, is not just... Uh, a Colossian model, Colossian and Philippian. Philippian in the sense that he put aside power, became humble, took on human form, and became part of the society and advocate being a light in the darkness. Yes. But that Colossian model sees him as the cosmic ruler of the universe, lord over social institutions, structures, and systems and governments, whether they're subject to him or not. Right. He is still Lord over them. So we have a responsibility to take the pattern of the incarnation where God takes his word, puts it in a body, and then sends that body into the world, whether it's the world of business, the world of art, entertainment, uh, the world of education, government, whatever that world may be, all right, you need to understand that it's all ministry. Yes. It's all representing the kingdom of God. And too often, you know, believers get caught up in thinking that, and this was pushed by certain uh, uh, mindsets, that the only way you can really do ministry is if you become a pastor or an evangelist or, you know, uh, some ecclesial representative of the kingdom. Right. But that's not true. There is marketplace ministry. If it wasn't for a little Pentecostal woman who worked at the bank as my secretary, who introduced me to Christ and introduced me to a guy named Nicky Cruz who led me to Christ, you know, I wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, so I see the church as a social cultural institution with a responsibility to the greater good. Uh, and, And that was confirmed by how we end up purchasing this particular piece of property. Because behind it sits a $1.2 billion housing development. Really? And the owner of that housing development, who is the uh, principal for the board of directors there, sought me out after watching me on television and listening on radio. So in 1997, he came and he said, Reverend, 
I have a $1.2 billion housing development, and I need you to help me preserve it. I said, really? He said, you need to build a church there. And I was pleasantly surprised at how he understood the church as an anchor for the community. And we needed space because we were having four services on Sunday by that time, wow. trying to accommodate everyone, our growth. And we negotiated a purchase of the land. And before we got in to that land, built the building, there was drugs, there was prostitution, it was the sex corridor, there was gang violence. And just coming there, we were able to transform that area of the community. Wow. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I'll have to ask you about Nikki Cruz a little bit later. My family <laughs> also has a connection to him. Uh, let me ask this. So there was clearly some connections to the city already for your church. Uh, there was already some involvement, some engagement and dialogue with uh, political figures, some engagement with uh, influential residents like the, the owner of this residential area. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, how did you get partnered with Gotham? Because you do have a development company that is partnering with you on this project. Can you tell us a little bit more of that relationship and how it's working for the sake of this project, for the sake of the urban village? Sure, but let me step back a bit to the first yeah. piece of what you just presented, and that is building relationships with elected officials, community leaders, people of influence. Uh, we did that for 10 years uh, intentionally, and I took a lot of heat from some of my colleagues in ministry because they were wondering, oh, he's going to compromise, going to get uh, politicized, and it's over. Uh, no, I think that we if we are firm in what we believe in our relationship with Christ and we understand our purpose and calling, all right, we have a responsibility to engage with those who influence and shape, you know, who we are as a church and what we do and how we can function. That's part of praying for the peace and prosperity of the city that we're in, right? Because if it right. prospers, we prosper. Right. But, you know, I believe that wholeheartedly as a people in captivity. You know, so we built those relationships and I moved beyond the heat <laughs> I got from my colleagues. Now they're asking me, what did you do and how did you do it? <laughs> uh, but it's out of those relationships over time that we developed a reputation uh, for who we are and the capacity to do what we're now able to do. Because many churches don't have the capacity or level of sophistication to take on a $1.2 billion uh, housing development uh, right. project. So that's the first piece. Now, second piece again. <laughs> Understood, yeah. So now the second piece, there's a specific relationship. With Gotham. You have, a, you have a developer who's involved and connected now to the project. Right. And so talk to me about that relationship, right. how it's working for the sake of the completion of the urban village. We spent two years meeting with several developers and there are only a few that handle projects at, at this level and there was not the chemistry there was not a shared philosophy of building and community we did not want to continue the warehousing model we wanted to create a community so there is a very specific philosophy that drives the vision for this and when we met with gotham it clicked the chemistry was there they got it they understood it you know they have a history of 100 years uh, as a family, generationally, in development uh, in the city. And they've done a great job. But most importantly, and even the architect, <laughs> how that came about was interesting. But that architect also understood where we were coming from and what we wanted to create. Yeah. And that created a synergy that led to a joint venture agreement uh, between Gotham 
and Christian Cultural Center and an organization that we created called Innovative Urban Living in order to do this uh, project as well because you want to separate it from the church. Right. Uh, and we've had a, uh, a year of continuing to grow that relationship. So we're very, very happy with Gotham, a uh, set of shared values and, and principles and forward movement. And also an opportunity for ministry because some of their executives are now reclaimed questions. to the king for the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And Gotham is a Jewish company. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, it started with that commitment to placemaking then. That's it started correct. started to that commitment to build community and make sure that it's uh, viable for those who don't have access to it at the moment, especially here in the Brooklyn area. Correct. Let me ask this. Uh, how are some decisions being made about who will get into the the community. I know that it's mixed. It's going to be diverse. It's going to be for those that are middle and low income, right? So it's mixed housing. But how are those decisions going to be made? Because community, to your point, requires a kind of chemistry. Yeah. And so how will that be fostered? Because you can't manufacture it, but but you certainly can foster that. Exactly. We have to be careful that we don't break any discrimination laws (laughs) in the process. Uh, it, It should happen organically. And because we are accessing certain tax credits, certain uh, programs that are city and state based, uh, they already have in place a methodology to uh, facilitate who comes in, you know, at the different income band levels. Uh, so we, we have less concern for that, and I like it like that. Right. So we simply have to work with the guidelines that each program offers us in order to build. So there's like MIH, which is um, a, a, a requirement that a certain percentage of the housing be affordable and permanently affordable, right. which is 20%. We're doing 30%. So we're exceeding, you know, all the percentages that are required. And um, that's the way we start. Also, meeting with the community boards, meeting with uh, the, the local elected officials, who have a concern to maintain the quality of life and also concern with what's going to happen as a result of a project like this because property values will go up but also you know property taxes are going to go up right you so know it, how it, do we face those realities the the, the impact that this is going to have yeah it's interesting because that's part of the legacy of Jane Jacobs as well right she she resisted something and then you look today and it, it raised property values and Greenwich Village and the areas that she protected yeah. became these these quaint, vintage, desirable locations that are now quite wealthy and expensive. And so, to your point, there, there's going to be some of that side effect happening with the urban village. Yeah. And so, do you have any thoughts on how you might address that, or or how we you are might processing that, that uh, in, in in programming and also understanding that some people who have been in the community for many years are going to be very happy at the increase of, uh, you know, the value of their property because they want to retire, move out, and move on, but they really couldn't afford to. You know, now they can. Uh, the issue will be with those who want to stay, you know, and yet they now have to face, you know, increased property tax. Right. How do we deal with that? And we're going to put some best minds together to, to address it. And I think that's another piece of the philosophy, taking into consideration what's going to happen to the communities as a result of what we're doing. And unfortunately, uh, not enough developers do that. I'll toot our horn, (laughs) all right? Because I will tell you, the community board leaders, uh, elected officials, one of the things that they have said 
is that we appreciate the fact that you guys sat with us several meetings over the last year to get our input. And we've actually made adjustments to our master plan as a result of the input of these elected officials. That's excellent. Now, that took time, energy, and it took skill. You talked about the capacity of your church as it compares to other churches. Uh, we want this model to be something that we can replicate, something that we can implement, for instance, in my home city in Chicago. Uh, let's ask that question. You, you've talked about thinking in the long game here, right? Thinking widely, thinking strategically. How, how will your church even begin to start to replicate something like this? I think that it begins with determining where you're going to start. <laughs> is humanity essentially good and the wound needs to be dealt with and needs to be redeemed? Because once you start there, you decide to build relationships with those who may not agree with your theology, with your faith, and realize that there's something called the common good, which is part of our Christian social ethic. We are our brother's keeper. Therefore, we have to interact with those who are part of humanity at large. You know, uh, Christian ethics, social ethics 101, Aquinian thinking is, or Aquinian thinking, however you want to say it, right. uh, is that, you know, the life and dignity of the human person. And the fact that it qualifies them for a life, a quality of life consistent with that dignity. And if we can participate in making that happen, then we have a responsibility to get involved. Now, you begin to grow, grow your capacity, learn, you know, build relationships, develop a reputation, uh, start small, you know, and then grow from there, which is what we did. Yeah, Sean Bennett, he's a writer who does uh, missiology out in the West Coast. He talks about the church being engaged in uh, guerrilla urbanism, small projects, you know, building a park, these kinds of things that create momentum yeah. as they build relationship with political figures, community leaders, influential partners, those kinds of things. Yeah. And I think that's somewhat what you're suggesting here. Yeah. And make sure you establish moral boundaries. Make sure that you never sit down to a meeting or a deal that you can't walk away from because right. then you're in trouble. The right. deal will have you, <laughs> the situation will have you, and then you can be tempted to compromise. You've right. got to have moral boundaries going in. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you so much, Dr. Bernard, for sitting with us. I want to honor your time. We're rub, rub, wrapping up here. Uh, are there any other things that you want to encourage the church to think through or, or something you want to commend to their thinking as we conclude here? Uh, if I could, uh, look, you left that open. I'm going to take the opportunity now. I think we need to, as the Church of Jesus Christ, especially as evangelicals in America, we need to revisit our doctrine of sin and understand that it needs to be broadened beyond the individual and understand how sin impacts society through systems, structures, policy, legislation, and that we have to get in there to make a difference. So in 1965, Jerry Falwell emphatically and clearly states that the church should not be involved in social movements. And we remember the 60s was a decade of every revolution imaginable within the society. But by the 1970s, late 1970s, he's now forming the moral majority and taking up social responsibility. Right after that, the Christian coalition came into play. You know, so we have to settle that we do have a responsibility 
the church is a social cultural institution and Absolutely. we need to get involved. How we get involved, you know, we need to work that through. All right. But we do have that responsibility. We say amen to that. Thank you, Dr. Bernard. This has been the World Outspoken Feature. For more on the Urban Village Project, check out the page that's attached to the podcast, and we'll have some information about the project, how it's progressing, some updates from Dr. Bernard. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Bernard, for being with us. And This has been the World Outspoken Feature. My pleasure. Thank you, Professor. <laughs>